Hello and welcome to a podcast brought to you by United Utilities and the Royal Horticultural Society. I'm Emma Clark, and this is the first episode in a short series delving into the sights and scenes of RHS Garden Bridgewater. In this episode, we're focusing on the jewel in the crown, the inner walled garden, part of the newly opened 154-acre RHS Garden Bridgewater in Salford. The fifth RHS garden to open, and one of the largest gardening projects undertaken in Europe in recent years. We'll be setting the scene and providing more information about the Paradise Garden and the Kitchen Garden, two highly designed gardens and popular hotspots for visitors within the Western Walled Garden. Taking us to the very start of the garden project, back to 2017, RHS Garden Bridgewater curator Marcus Chilton-Jones describes the condition of the site when the Royal Horticultural Society took over and some of the challenges they faced. Marcus also told us about the evolving plans for how the project was to ultimately benefit the community and inspire locals to explore outdoor spaces. When we took ownership of the site back in 2017, there were an, a, an obvious number of challenges. Lots of the walls were falling over. Lots of things were overgrown. We had rhododendron ponticum all through the woods. Ivy was cladding all these walls that are around us now. Seedling trees had come in. So there were lots of natural processes that had taken place. Nature was taking the site back over. And in that process, it had, it had degraded a lot of the, the assets, if you like, the walls, the buildings, the landscape. So there was an initial assessment that was needed. You just you couldn't see what the state of the walls was. You, you really didn't know necessarily what was there until you started doing some clearance. So there was a lot of, if you like, housekeeping, just, just, just clearing the site so that we could understand and evaluate what needed doing in a practical sense in terms of path construction, irrigation, fixing the walls. There was that side. But then running in tandem with that was the evolving ideas for the way that we could develop this garden and this landscape within the framework of an historic context, but adding in modern contemporary elements as a forward-looking garden. It's not a garden restoration at all. We have restored the key elements, the key heritage elements of the site, the walls, the buildings, and we've respected the topography. And over that, we are integrating lots and lots of specific garden types and themes that will resonate with people hopefully for the next hundred years and beyond. The model that we've come up with for the walled garden really has four headline themes dependent on the geographic position within the garden. So the area that we're in now, the Paradise Garden and its sister garden next door, the Kitchen Garden, which are mirror images of one another in terms of the, the footprint and the, the, the architecture, if you like. These are really driven by, first and foremostly, excellence in horticulture, which is what the RHS is about and does really well and has done for a couple of hundred years. And that's the primary driver. That's, that's the top line. And that's what we're you know, really hoping to achieve with these spaces. When you move out into the peripheral areas of the walled garden, there are, there are three other themes that are the top line driver. 
all of the the southern gardens and the eastern end of the walled garden, the slip areas, are about community engagement and reaching out to people to help them become better gardeners, better growers, better horticulturalists. So we have a learning garden, community grow, the well-being garden. All of these elements are, are really people-focused, first and foremost, with horticulture as a mechanism for, for getting them engaged with nature and getting them hands-on. And then we've got the western end of the garden, the orchard, which is just behind this wall here, which is, as its headline, its top strap line, is, is environmentally driven and in terms of its environmental sustainability. So we've got a bee and butterfly garden in there. We'll have a wildlife wall. We're pr putting in a traditional orchard, which is long lived and is one of the key biodiversity action plan habitats that Natural England has. So that's its top headline. And then lastly, the northern end of the wall garden, the frame yard, in the spirit, and this, this is one of those nuances of linking the past with the present, in the spirit of technology and innovation, this is where the potting sheds were. This is where the chimney was, the heating systems, the growing systems, the coal bunkers, where they stored the fruit and veg. All of those technical things were in that area. And we've reinterpreted it and recreated that feeling, but with a modern twist. We're still growing plants up in this area, but we're trialing plants as well. So that the way that we've ordered and managed the development of the site is, is, isn't just about the gardens themselves. There's a philosophy about the outputs that are required in terms of people, place, the environment as well, and how that sits within the spirit of the place, what makes this place tick historically and looking forward. With historical influences behind the layout, particular inspiration came from the Bridgewater Canal, which runs along the southern boundary of RHS Garden Bridgewater and the underwater canals, created to access coal at nearby Worsley Delph. Charlotte Harris and Hugo Bug from Harris Bug Studios designed the two-acre kitchen garden. They tell us more about how their design was turned into reality. We are really interested in stories and narratives when we make gardens and landscapes. And, and our approach, our practice approach, is that we want people to be able to unpick a garden or a landscape on many different levels. And that might be, that of course is going to be the horticultural level, but it's also those gardens that you can unpick on a, another narrative, whether it's historic and heritage or conservation or geology or, um, you know, the past use of that land gives it other levels and so we were really kind of digging into we were really fascinated when we went on the site first site visit and we obviously had the background information pack about Bridgewater which talked a lot about the history of the site and had the architectural features of the site and we were really drawn to the Bridgewater Canal. Yeah the, the canal borders um, the Bridgewater land um, and, you know, there's so much history in there. It was part of the, well, it was the main reason for the big industrial revolution um, uh, of the uh, the North. And having that go right past um, the land and it obviously being, um, well, part of the canal system invented by the Duke of Bridgewater mm. just gave it so much resonance to what we were doing. And we were really thinking about how we could incorporate that within our design. Um, and making it not too not too literal either. So there was this idea of you know being able to discover 
that our design has this connection with you know the story and the history, but also not um, in your face, and you could you could unpeel that and learn about it at your own speed. So we looked at how we could overlay um, part of the underground canal network into our path network or the core path network of the garden. Actually, what the Duke of Bridgewater did with that canal system is amazing, and you know, as Hugo said, really made Manchester from a kind of and the, a greater Manchester from a collection of villages into this sort of powerhouse, industrial powerhouse. And it is so vis visual, isn't it, when you, you know, you you feel it there and you feel the, that industrial history of great cities like Manchester or Birmingham, all those great industrial cities. I'm reflecting the area, another layer of um, locality and connections was our secondary network of paths, which came off this main artery running through the garden. Um, and that's where we... Over, well, we looked at um, some historical maps of the, of the actual surrounding area um, from the 1890s and looked at the field patterns and again looked at how we could simplify and abstract those to, and then overlay in the bigger, larger beds to create this smaller network that people can explore. But every garden of any type, but particularly a kitchen garden, what you want to do is attract beneficial wildlife and water is absolutely one of the key drivers of that. So we wanted to think about how you would introduce that water in a way that was appropriate and beautiful and meaningful and that you could potentially grow things in as well. Um, so some of them, as you get as reflectacles and others are simply reflective of the light, but also really great for wildlife. So the long water uh, reflective pools um, throughout the garden are, um, well, the shape of them isn't um, referencing any historical elements of, of the site itself but the actual detailing to construct those does so the stone um, well, got three we've got two materials so we've got the brick and we've got natural stone so the brick is obviously reflects the brick in the in the wall surrounding the garden and then the stone capping and the stone coins on the corners um, reflect and match those of the archways and the doorways to the walled garden and then also the um, coping to the the main walls themselves so it's really about these it's really about these sort of gentle references. What we wanted to do was make the garden feel cohesive without bashing anyone over the head with the details. There is a gentle connection, there is a purpose to how they're designed. When we designed the garden, we wanted to make something that felt that, that people could be inspired by and could connect to rather than being something so far away from everybody's day to day. Our way of looking at it was how do we create these moments throughout the garden with which whatever size of garden you've got you know you could have a big space in Altrincham you could have a balcony in Bolton do you know what I mean it doesn't matter the size of your growing space you can grow things productively. Hugo and Charlotte gave us their thoughts on what they loved about the garden they designed and the importance of sustainable measures such as growing produce for eating. My favourite um, part of the garden is the is the path network um, and I know look, with all the gardens we've designed and every garden um, you know no garden is actually complete with with the plants and and how the plants soften it and, and bring it all together and make it a garden um, but I think because the path network that we created is so different to what you'd normally find in a in a walled kitchen garden what I love and have really loved working on is really digging into the um, background of lots of the plants that we kind of did long lists for and then had discussions with Sylvia for and the curatorial team 
and really getting a really in-depth understanding of those, like how they're used in very alternative uses often or very um, uh, traditional uses that perhaps we weren't aware of. Uh, and I also really love the work around the fruit training and the designs on the fruit training. Yeah, I think like the wider paths sort of then create these digestible chunks with inside them of the little paths. So when you're exploring one section of the smaller paths which are the field boundaries, you could feel like you're in one garden as such. Um, yeah, maybe that makes it more digestible as you sort of work your way through the garden. And I think, I guess what that also shows us, those smaller beds show us, it doesn't matter how small your garden is, you can grow things to eat or to use or to have as teas. And this sort of past year, this pandemic year, has, I think there's been a kind of explosion. There already was a kind of growth in interest around growing to eat. I think there's been a real explosion in that. Reflecting on what they wanted visitors to feel when they come to visit Bridgewater, Hugo and Charlotte discuss why this amazing attraction aims to inspire as many different people as possible. We want everyone to be able to enjoy this garden, whatever your age, whatever your mobility, whoever you are, whether you've, ever, whether you've got a garden, never visited a garden. We wanted it to be a place that really embraced people. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't create somewhere that was exclusive or intimidating, but it really inspired people, I think. You have to consider what will grow in that wetter climate. You also have to put a slice of planting in there that's trying new things out and taking a risk. Otherwise, you know, where do we expand and grow? But there's certainly things that probably we, you know, we've had on long lists and then in discussions with Sylvia have said, that probably falls to the bottom. And that's partly because, okay, two acres is, is big, or just under two acres is big, but you can't do everything, and you want to be able to do the things you're doing well. And equally, when designing a, you know, the garden at Bridgewater, and in the day we're designing a, a very man-made, man-looked-after walled garden, um, and because we had the luxury of designing it from the outset, albeit inheriting the walls, um, we can get the infrastructure right to start with, so the drainage, you know, the layout of the beds, and so there are things that we do to improve those conditions as much as possible prior to then to then planting, um, which then yeah, helps um, with our, um, I guess, the selection and the availability to us. It's um, low input, high output, and that, well, that's the core principle behind a, um, a forest garden itself. Mm. That's that's why the that's why they the idea was first and permaculture was really invented was to create these low input high output um, systems um, and not what conventional agriculture is these days um, because everyone knows that well, people are starting to realise that is not the only way and it's not the best way. Working closely with Charlotte and Hugo is Sylvia Travers, who is the team leader for the Inner Walled Garden. We spoke to Sylvia to understand more about nature's role at the gardens, from keeping it watered to the importance of soil nutrition. Any Victorian garden uh, would have had a pool where gardens would have dipped their watering cans. They may not necessarily have had hoses at that time, so they, they would have had these big bowsers on wheels, and would have filled them and wheeled, wheeled it around to where they needed to water their crops, likewise having watering cans. So it's, kind of, it's a hark back to that. Um, so they look like they've been there a while, We'll also grow things like watercress and um, wasabi in them just to give a little bit of extra productivity. But they just add a very nice calming reflection to the whole area and um, I really, really like them. We're a little bit different to what, how things would have been done originally in this garden in the sense that 
we don't use any chemicals in the kitchen garden or indeed in the paradise garden whereas Victorian gardens would have relied on them heavily to control their pests and diseases. We also don't dig the soil um, we follow sort of no dig methods which again isn't a new technique it's been around for millennia but it's now become something that's got scientific backing and, and it's something that is proven to be really good for the soil and nutrition and um, so we, we follow that it saves our backs as gardeners too and it's so every autumn um, or early spring the beds are mulched with a layer of well composted green waste or mushroom compost and crops go straight into that the soil isn't turned um, so that the, the soil life underneath does not get disturbed the worms do the work and the microbiology do the work and all those fungal strands from the mushroom compost help establish a nice little biome in the soil for us to grow in and most annual vegetable crops really only grow in the first few centimetres of soil anyway and that's where the main feeding and watering goes on and, and this organic matter holds water whilst also stabilising the soil underneath and given that we've moved all the soil in here from where our car park now is moving it in dumpers and filling the beds has completely destroyed that structure so when it rained um, soon after we moved the soil the place was like a quagmire and it was impossible but now after a year of mulching the soil leaving it be putting plants in and just weeding very gently around the plants the soil is now good enough we can stand on so soil that you cannot stand on that's really soft and you sink into is not good soil soil should be kind of like a sponge you can stand on it has a bit of give in it but you don't sink and you don't take it with me with you when you uh, walk off it um, so from that point of view, I think we're very, for the scale we're doing at it, we're, we're very different. Designed by renowned landscape architect and garden designer Tom Stewart-Smith, the Paradise Garden sits at the centre of the walled garden. Tom shares more about the inspiration and story behind this magnificent space. The Paradise Garden is the sort of centre of the centre of the centre, as it were. So you, you come to the site, um, to the new, you know, the new welcome building. You then, you will then arrive out of that and you'll see the new garden, you know, it's called the, the, the welcome garden. And you, and you will see the wall garden on your left. You then go through a series of spaces. They're all the community gardens, which sort of wrap around the central space. Then you'll go into, into um, the, the vegetable garden, the one designed by Charlotte and Hugo. And then there's this quite dramatic sense of sort of, you know, of, um, of accumulating tension almost, rather like you were coming to the throne room in a, in, a, in, a, in a palace, you know, that you come through an ante room and then through a bigger hall and then into a really big hall with the, with the bothy behind it and the chimney. So there's a sense of this being the sort of final chapter in the story of the garden. Because it's an enclosed garden with three or four metre high walls all around it, it is fairly independent. I think I was approaching it very much from the point of view of what, what would people want to get? What do people want to get out of an RHS garden? Um, they want something which is not just a collection of small gardens. I, I think they're, they're looking for something which is probably beyond what they would do in their own garden, almost a sense of, of um, you know, something of being a bit sublime, if I'm allowed to use that word, you know, just just bigger and and rather overpowering. I think one might say, you know, it has wow factor. That's the phrase which everyone uses, isn't it? Um, the middle of the garden is empty, and that might seem like a rather perverse thing to do. 
in a in a garden that is you know potentially going to have i don't know maybe a million visitors in 10 years that's the ambition um but i thought that it was important particularly if you had a sort of almost processional route into this garden from from um from the south that when you when you when you arrive in a space through a front door what you don't want to be doing is looking at the backs of all the other people who've just arrived there before you you want to have a sense that you've arrived in this great space and and that the garden is revealed around you and the only way you're going to really be able to do that is to fill the thing with water so people can't go there tom elaborates on the framework of the paradise garden and specifically the role that water plays in the design and layout of the gardens in the garden at bridgewater it's it's a it's a modified um quadripartite arrangement a modified four-part arrangement in that the um the main axis actually runs across the garden and um, it starts at one end uh, in a, a small basin with a with a jet of water, and in in Islam, you know, the the the, the water, and rather like it is in in us, increasingly as 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 we get into a drier climate, you know, water is seen as the sort of spirit of the world. Um, without water, nothing nothing lives. Well, I mean, maybe in Manchester and Salford, you know, <laughs> you get maybe a bit too much of the stuff. Um, so the, the water springs out of this, this water basin and then it goes down a long, narrow rill, which is a very characteristic thing of Islamic gardens, particularly in the, in the sort of Maghreb, in, in Morocco, Egypt, and then going through to places like Syria and, and um, Iran. When visitors come to the Paradise Garden, the aim is to inspire visually, evoke sensory experiences, and to encourage reflection about beauty, kindness and caring for the world around us. We asked Tom what he wanted people to take away from a visit. I hope that people will want to come back again and tell their friends about it and, and say that it's something uplifting and, uh, and beautiful. Um, I mean, yes, if, if people see things that they, that they want to grow at home so that some of these less usual plants are, are brought into people's homes, that's great. But I do think the main thing is that, that it encourages people to, to, you know, to get down and dirty themselves. I mean, to, to get gardening, because it, it, it is something which brings so much, so much pleasure to people's lives and, and so much um, in, terms of, in terms of, you know, your personal um, health and sanity. Um, and until you actually, you know, I mean, looking at gardens is great, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's good for your blood pressure and all this kind of stuff, but actually doing the stuff, that is, that is when you really feel you're, you're having an effect on, on, on the world around you. And, and, you know, and if you can't or don't have a, a garden of your own, you know, to have somewhere like 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 um, Bridgewater where you can go and volunteer, or or you can help in a local um, gardening club, or, or or you know, there are so many gardening projects around now which which bring people together and 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 get people talking to each other. Um, and it's you know, whereas whereas if we if we meet over the over the the sort of you know the petrol pump, um, and I've bagged your place, and and uh, you're in a hurry. You know, we're likely to end up telling each other to get off, <laughs> sort of whatever. Um, if we meet in a garden, we're somehow sort of instant friends. You know, it just has this amazing ability to, to diffuse testosterone, to to get people um, talking about this sort of this shared mutual interest, 
and and just make people kinder and more attentive to the world that they live in. So I just think it's it's a it's a it's such a constructive uh, place to be in the garden. It's amazing how much careful thought and consideration goes into crafting these incredible spaces. And the designs are also guided by the garden's historic infrastructure, including its geology. In our discussion with Marcus, he explained the importance of the natural environment's influence on the site. Geology and natural processes over millions of years have helped shape this site. And those processes have left us with a, a, a rich inheritance, if you like, of things that we can garden on in different ways. So to explain, the northern side of the site, and this is roughly in thirds, it corresponds in thirds. So the northern third is a hill, south facing, with sandy soils over the top of it, very free draining, warm up quickly, over the top of sandstone bedrock, which overlays coal seams. Deep, much, much deeper down, which move over into Worsley Dell. So that particular landform and soil type that we have is really good for growing things that like free draining conditions, slightly longer growing season. It, it means there are certain plants that we can integrate within that part of the site, which you might not be able to grow elsewhere. As you move further south, you get to the central third position, ribbon through RHS Bridgewater, which are post-glacial clays. So the last ice age ended circa 10, 12,000 years ago, I think. And as the ice sheet retreated, it left clays through this central portion of the site, which obviously then set a characteristic in terms of the, the plants that grow here and therefore the wildlife that lives off them. And this, this wall garden sits on where that glacial ice sheet was. So we're over clays. There are obviously importations of soil and other bits that have gone on, but the actual main element of this portion of the site is, is driven in a horticultural sense by these clay soils. And then thirdly, as you move down to the southern part of the site, that historically was part of chat moss, which was much bigger and chat moss grew as the last ice age ended. So there was this warming up and everything getting wetter and it created chat moss, which was 10 times bigger than chat moss is now. It was a huge area. The Georgians drained large areas of that primarily to build Bridgewater Canal and turn those lots of those areas over to agriculture, which obviously are pretty good for growing on because they're rich peaty loams and that constitutes the bottom third of our sites, an inheritance from this, this peat bog past from, that started forming 10,000 years ago and was probably only drained about 300 years ago or thereabouts. A fascinating insight from Marcus on some of the geological and historic impacts on the makeup of RHS Garden Bridgewater. And today, there are people who play a vital role at the gardens, Bridgewater relies on a fantastic network of dedicated local volunteers to offer up their time to upkeep and maintain the impressive gardens. We spoke to two of the volunteers to get their views on why they love the gardens. Volunteer guide Janice McGrath 
touches on her appreciation of how historical influences have been acknowledged in the design inspiration for the gardens, but also the links to modern day gardening practices. I'm particularly interested in the design for the kitchen garden, actually, and how the designers uh, took the um, maps and uh, from the underground canals in Worsley and also the um, ancient um, uh, field uh, maps and sort of used that as a starting point and an inspiration for the garden. I thought that was really a wonderful way to approach a garden design and personally speaking I would never have imagined that would have been possible um, and I just I just really love how the past is, is echoed here obviously there are still many um, links to the past we're standing next to the garden cottage which was the head gardener's cottage at the time of the hall we've got the the old chimney uh, which was linked to the um, the original boiler which heated the the walls of the walled garden and there's just those um, links with the past but I, I love the way that it's been brought into the uh, to the modern day so of course now there is a biomass boiler here which is uh, heating the greenhouses so um, it's um, a, a really modern, um, up to the minute garden, but um, linking that past and making sure that, that that link to the past is is maintained. So I was lucky enough to be involved here at Bridgewater almost from the word go really. I started volunteering in 2017 and um, for me the, the my memories of this place will be really seeing how it developed and, and how it went from being uh, an area that was um, sort of a, a garden that was hidden away from the world really under years and decades of, uh, of vegetation and really for me the, the, the wonder has been just seeing it emerge from that and the and you know how inspirational uh, to imagine and to um, bring to life um, a garden like that. Um, that's something that I will carry with me, I think, for however long I, I'm involved in, in this and, and, and on after that, I think. Margaret Bibby was asked what makes her get up and come to the garden as a volunteer gardener. Well, there's no such thing as bad weather, is there? Just the wrong clothes. <laughs> and I just I just love to be here. I haven't got a big garden, so there's not a lot I can do every day in my garden. I have to spread it out to make something to do every day. So coming here the once a week gives me a focus to the week. I know when it's going to be Thursday. Otherwise, it's just a day, a day, a day, a day, and another day, especially with the lockdowns that we've had. And um, this last lockdown hasn't been that bad because I've come in here on a Thursday, uh, but before the weeks just went on and on and on. So, but yeah, it's, it's the one day of the week where I have a purpose to get up and it's just bliss, especially bliss in the paradise and kitchen gardens because it's, it's beautiful. There we have it. We've had some wonderful accounts from a range of individuals who were key to the creation of this magnificent and wide ranging garden. Stay tuned for the next two episodes in this series where we'll be delving deeper into the Bridgewater estate, exploring the historic Ellesmere Lake and the newly created Chinese Streamside Garden, as well as how the garden serves the Salford community. 
I hope you've been inspired to come and visit RHS Garden Bridgewater so that one day you'll be able to experience these amazing gardens set in historic landscapes. You can find out more about Bridgewater online at www.rhs.org.uk slash gardens slash Bridgewater. Thanks for listening.